Good evening. Good evening. All right, I've got to confess. On Wednesday or Tuesday when Mike uh, sent the message and he said, you know what? He said, uh, I really would appreciate it if you could speak Sunday. I feel terrible. I said to myself, I said, oh no. <laughs> and I walked into a vet's office and I said, he had to be gone the week we do Isaiah 40. I said, you've got to be kidding me. All right. Isaiah 40. I trust that I can't do it justice that Mike would, but I did put in time and effort, and I pray that we're able to learn much from it. Lucy, I'm already one tick behind. Put down one tick because our word tonight is going to be Isaiah. All right. That's our second tick. Go ahead and keep track of the word Isaiah. I was trying to figure out which word we would look at, and there's a very special prophet, and we're going to focus on him, or at least his prophecy, a lot as we go throughout tonight. And so we will be looking at Isaiah chapter 40. Tonight, as we consider the task at hand, it starts off, we've got Isaiah, you can read chapters 1 through 39. You begin... Reading through Isaiah, and as you go through it, there is a bleak picture. There is a picture of doom and gloom. You know, I try to picture as a, a human, it's like your life is literally fixing to fall apart. Everything you know is fixing to become miserable. Everything that you're used to is going to be taken away. Everything that you enjoy, expect it to be no more. All right. Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, the whole idea is, look, you've got the impending years of the Babylonian captivity heading your way. If you're there in Isaiah, we'll look, we'll notice just one verse as he's, as he's kind of closing up the, the topic for Isaiah chapter 39. In Isaiah chapter 39 and verse 6, six, it says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. He says, Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. We've got the warning. We've got the warning to the people as Isaiah is, is giving them or portraying this prophecy to them. He says, look out, guys. <laughs> Captivity's coming. And so tonight, as we start with Isaiah chapter 40, take pride because the picture transfers. And in Isaiah chapter 40, the entire idea, just as within the song we uh, we sang just a moment ago, is remain steadfast. All right, your life's going to the pits. It's going to get really bad, he says, but I'll tell you what, don't, don't lose heart. Chapter 40 begins with, uh, it's not over. There's reason to push on. There's reason to go forward. Understand that these children of Israel that are fixing to go into captivity... In chapters 1 through 39, the thoughts going through their head as they've been warned, like, look, your life is going to come to a halt. It's going to be terrible. You're not going to enjoy it. And then he gets to chapter 40, 
And it's as though he's speaking to those who are already found in captivity. All right, the picture is, you know, I'm telling you the captivity's coming and now you're in captivity and he starts out in verse one with the words comfort. Yes, comfort my people. You know, sometimes comfort's very nice. You know, we enjoy the comforts of our home. It says, well, there's no place like going home to my easy chair and my recliner. You hate to get a new one because then it doesn't sit the same. All right? The comforts of home. And he says, look, you're outside of home. You're in captivity. You've been taken away into a foreign land. And yet he starts out with comfort. Comfort, my people. You know, sometimes when your life's falling apart, you wonder where to turn next. You say, man, how do I even go on? It's like everything I do falls apart. Every task I try goes the wrong direction. In fact, Jace was just telling me a moment ago when he started working on the electric, lo and behold, it didn't work just like he thought it was going to. It seems like sometimes tasks just don't work out. And it's like, where do I go in life? And the song that we just sang was the idea of being steadfast. Notice Isaiah chapter 40, God's comfort for his people. Beginning in verse 1, it says, God, comfort. Yes, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. And cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double off for all her sins. All right, understanding what took place here. God's people had withdrawn from God. The children of Israel had, had turned their back, and it just so happens that God doesn't care who you are. God can use whatever is going on in society to accomplish his will. And that's literally what the entirety of Isaiah chapter 40 is about. God can use the circumstances, no matter what they are, to accomplish His will. God withdrew from His people, allowing them to become captives. But they're going to be raised up. You know, imagine being these people and they think back, you know, God promised in Genesis chapter 12 to Abram. He said, I'll make of thee a great nation. And in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. He said, he'll bless those who bless them. Curse those who curse them. And we see that, that God says he's going to take care of this people. And now you get down to Isaiah. And they're like, well, we done messed it all up. God had this promise for us, and here we are. We're going into captivity. We've destroyed God's purpose. We've, we've ruined the promise that was made to us. But the idea in, Genesis, I mean, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3, is I can use you. You might feel as though all is lost. In fact, we have a lot of people that feel that in the world today. It seems like, you know, they say when it rains, it pours. Feels like things just aren't working out, but understand, God can still accomplish His will 
through all the terrible things that are experienced. As you look at Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 2, it said they had received double for all their sins. This separation that was caused because the people had left God, God withdrew from them, and now I think back to Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 where it says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. He says, and your, your sins have hidden His face from you so that God will not hear, so that He will not hear. We mentioned Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 this morning where it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we see the problem that causes the separation that separated the children of Israel that gets, into the, gets them into this mess. And now you're headed for captivity. Now remember, this is a prophecy, so they're not yet in captivity. And they're not yet needing the comfort that he's talking about that's being prophesied to them. And possibly they are, knowing they're going into captivity. They're like, man, it's over. We might as well just hang up the towel. But they need the comfort that is going to come. But I want you to recognize that God will welcome them back. Look at verse 3. We sang the song just a second ago, and the chorus is here. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Prepare the way of the Lord. I think about everything that's going on, and as they feel as though their life is ended and worthless, and I try and look at it from their perspective, and he says, but wait on God. Wait upon the Lord. He says, in fact, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make it, make it ready. He says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You know, there aren't many things I hate worse than that, uh, that trip home to Iowa. You get on I-55 and you just keep driving and driving and driving. But I can tell you one thing that's worse. If you drive up through South Missouri and the roads go like this, the entire way you start to appreciate the interstate. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, he says, Make straight in the desert. Make the path so it's convenient. Make it a super highway so he can be there. He says in verse 4, Every valley shall be exalted. That's literally what they do with the interstate. You know, you, you're coming up the interstate and it's like, Well, why are there these big hills beside us? And then you go down a little bit further and it's like, Well, all this is built way up above the ground below us and it's, it's to bring down the highest highs and to raise up the lowest parts so that it's more of a straight path. It makes it easier. Have you ever tried crossing over the mountains? We've got those rough paths, but if you get on one that's not an interstate, whoo, then you're in for it. Dio would be glad to tell you all about driving over the mountain passes. You talk about the, the path, and he says you make it as perfect as possible for the coming of the Lord. You make the return simple. All right. In verse 5, he says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, welcoming back God. 
I think it's very likely that this has a twofold meaning. First off, in the immediate context, who was there? We've got the Babylonians. I mean, the Babylonians that are holding the children of Israel captive hasn't taken place yet, but it's fixing to take place. And so this, looking back in retrospect, says, hey, prepare for the Lord. Now, I think it's very likely that one thing it could point to is that of the children of Israel. Look, right now you need to get your life straight. Remember the reason that they're found in all this? Because their sins had separated them from God. It says in verse 2 that they had received from the Lord's hand devil for all her sins, all for her sins. And as we see this separation that comes, basically the point is, get back on the Lord's side. And I think that could be part of the immediate context for them, don't give up. But I think in the grander scheme of things, there's a much bigger picture than this. Because he says, don't give up, the promise will still be fulfilled. In fact, as you go to the New Testament, this is borne out many times. In fact, we refer back to this, this passage here in Isaiah chapter 40 over and over in all four of the Gospels. It is referenced. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, in verse 3, we're looking at John the Baptist. Here he comes. We'll start in verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then in verse 3 it says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, Here we go. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. You want to know what's important? There was preparation that was fixing to take place. And as John comes preaching this preparation, all he's saying is, Jesus is right behind me. Here he comes, and therefore you be ready. Remember, they're found in captivity right now. Life is miserable. And he says, wait on the Lord. The promise will be fulfilled. The Christ is coming. The world will be blessed through you guys, even though you're stuck in slavery. God will still accomplish His purpose. You can look at Mark chapter 1 and verse 3. We see the same quote. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. We see the same thing. We can look at John chapter 1 and verse 23, and you see the same thing. John the Baptist came preaching a message, and that message was, Jesus is coming. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Be steadfast. Be firm. Be grounded. Be courageous. God will be victorious. Look at Luke chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and we'll read just a sort of lengthy portion here. Luke chapter 1. You know, from a dad's perspective, I don't know what he was thinking. Here we go. Luke chapter 1. Let's look at verse 11. Zacharias, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. 
But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, he says, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. It says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Notice in verse 17 it says, He will also go before him. Him, capitalized. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the, fa- of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He said, your son will be something really special. Your son is going to come and he will prepare the way for the Lord. And we see John come into the picture. We see the rough man that comes and he goes preaching. We see many people that are converted and and recognize that there's something special about John. And all of this coming back from Isaiah chapter 40 where they're told, look, here it is. Make your paths ready. Get excited because the Lord is still coming. Don't think it's over. Life is not done. There's still hope. And so we see the welcoming back of God. Let's go to, back to Isaiah chapter 40. Now here's the problem. You just saw everything fall apart in your life. And you're told, you know, take comfort, be strong in the Lord. He's still taking care of the situation. And yet you're stuck in slavery. What's the problem? The problem is you're saying to yourself, I don't know about him. I don't know about God. Is he really taking care of me? Does he even care? Does this guy even exist? You're trying to tell me to still trust in God while I'm stuck in slavery? You say, comfort, oh, comfort. Well, thanks, Isaiah. A lot of good that does me. All right. We've got their thought process. And now in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 6, he says, I'll take care of that. Here we go. The voice said, cry out. Okay, so this is the voice that, that speaks out and Isaiah is going to be the one that refers what the voice says. Here we go. And he said, what shall I cry? And here's the cry. All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. All right, so within this picture, we try and think of the the most seamless, weak thing that you can think of upon the earth. And he said, hey, I've got an idea. Everybody can trample grass, right? And he, he says, look here, people are grass. He said, but when you compare, you know, the weakest of things on the earth, what is it? So, <laughs> what about your breath? It's hard for me to blow on you from here. I surely couldn't blow you over. And I definitely can't be like the big, big bad wolf and blow the building down from a simple blow. But yet with the picture, we've got a picture where it says, hey, God is the one that through his breath, which is so strong, the weakest of things that he could have, his breath is so strong that man is like, 
blades, blades of grass that are blown down. He's comparing the insignificance of mankind to the superiority of God, the majesty of God. And so in verse 8, it said, the grass withers and the flower fades. He says, but listen here, the word of God stands forever. When you talk about that breath of God, we're talking about the literal breath of God's word has the ability that is beyond comprehension. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And you think about the insignificance of man in view of the greatness of God. Go ahead and look down the following verse. It says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Remember, this is the picture of people that are stuck in captivity and, you know, they might be a little down and yet he's saying, look, you say, my God. Trust in their Lord, trust in his power. Man is frail in view or in comparison to God. And then we see that spread the word, God is still in control. Good days are ahead. God's will will, God's will will, God's will is going to overcome. It is going to be victorious in verse 9. Don't you let your heart down. Don't give up on yourself. Don't be saddened because you feel like it's all over because no matter what, God's Word stands forever. And nothing, I mean nothing, will bring it down. And yet they feel like they've done destroyed it because here they are being carted off into captivity. Let's notice, notice also verse 11. He says... Let's catch verse 10 and 11. We've got the picture here of the shepherd, God the shepherd, not the only time in Scripture where it's, where it's drawn as a correlation, but here in verse 10 it says, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. We see God's strength. And in His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His works before Him. And now not, notice not only the strength of God, but in verse 11 it says, He will feed His flock like a shepherd. We see His care for His people. Not only do we see His care, but we're fixing to see His gentleness. Look, it says He will gather the lambs with His arms and He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those who are with young. We see the gentleness of God, we see the strength of God, and we see all this wrapped up in one who cares for you. Now, start in verse 12. Let's look at the vastness of God. As I read through verse 12, I can't help but think of a little child that's sitting on the floor and performing a science experiment. You know, they've got the ingredients over here that they mix over here and the ingredients over here and they mix them together and then it turns into the little volcano. You've got someone that's fixing to sell something. You know, I've watched that gold miners 
TV show once. It was a long time ago, but I remember in the Gold Miner show, you know, they've got this little scale, and in it they put stuff on this side and stuff on this side, and you've got a weight, and it measures, and you're like, wow, it really does weigh that much. Now, let's look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? It says, who has measured heaven with a span and calculated, calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? All right. So here we are. He says, let me see. The earth needs about that much water. Throw it in. He says, the heaven, it's about, eh, yay big. He says, the hills and the mountains, he draws them up here in his scale, and he says, well, there's some, some mountains and some hills. And what's the idea? God is so much greater than Mount Everest. He views it as a toy. It's something that is small in comparison. And as he looks at it, the picture here is the greatness of God versus the insignificance of this world. The greatest thing that we know, like physically speaking, would be the size of the earth and the universe. And we're like, oh, it's big. And God said, ah, heaven's about, hmm, yay big. The measure of his hand. All right. Verse 13, he said, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he go to counsel, and who instructed him? Who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? He says, where did he go to school? He graduated up at Memphis State. They couldn't teach him nothing. Did he go to school in grade school and have one of those great teachers that taught, taught him everything so that he could create the earth? Absolutely not. Wasn't anybody could teach God because he was above it. His vastness was far greater. No professor or teacher exists that was able to teach God. All right. Verse 15, the entirety of a nation is counted as nothing. Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. My dad used to always say the phrase drop in the bucket. That's just drop in the bucket. They are counted as small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. Drop down to verse 17. It says, all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. You find yourself in captivity. You feel like you're overtaken. There's another nation that rules over you, and it's like, well, there's no way we'll ever get out of this. This is the greatest nation in the world. There's no way we're ever going to overcome them. And God said, that nation ain't nothing. He said, I can destroy them with the flick of a finger. All right. We see the power of God versus the insignificance of the greatest nation that there ever could have been. He said, they weren't but a drop in the bucket. Notice verse 16, there is no offering that is worthy of honoring our God. It says, and Lebanon, which is the forests of Lebanon, the mountains of Lebanon, this area where it's filled with trees, the greatest trees in the world. He says, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. You take the whole forest and you, you make this big offering, this big sacrifice to God. Throw in all the, the, all the wood you got. Remember when they talked about the, the wood of Lebanon? It's a special wood. It's a great wood. And he says, that doesn't deserve to even be used as an offering to God because that's how great God is. Go on. Verse 16, it says, nor its beasts. 
And what he means is all of it, all of them, all the beasts that you find. He says, you take them all up, you stack them up on this offering to the God. And he says, look, those beasts, they're not sufficient to offer to God as a burnt offering. They don't, they don't add up. Why? Because God's that much better. All right, we're running out of time. Here we go. Verse 18, idols, they aren't an equal to God. It says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare him to? The workman molds an image. All right, and then we've got the old goldsmith. He comes and he overspreads it with gold. Woo, it's special. He said, then the silversmith, he casts silver chains. He makes something really nice. He said, that's pretty special. What you've got there, woo, that's nice. And he says, whoever is too impoverished, we've got the poor person that can't afford to, that can't afford to make this, this gold image to bow down and worship, the silver chain to hang around their neck. He says, whoever is too impoverished, for such a contribution, they go out and they find a tree that will not rot. They go find the best tree they can. They say, "Woo, this bad boy is oak. This is cypress. He said, this is some really special wood. And it says, and he goes out and then he finds somebody that's really skillful. And they say, carve that boy up. I want him to look real nice when you're done. That idol ain't nothing. All right. He seeks for himself a skilled workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Won't accomplish anything. It won't do. All right. Verse 21. God's superiority, superiority, sorry, over his people. How's he superior? Well, let me tell you, in every way, and that's what he's fixing to say. Verse 21. Have you not known? In our world, we would say, are you stupid? Do you not realize, is there a brain in your head? That's what he's saying. Do you not have any idea what's going on here? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? He said, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is obvious it's been trapped, passed down by generations. You know who created you. He said, and here you are. Well, what am I going to do? God's done gave up on me. I'm stuck in Babylonian captivity. God can't overcome this people. This nation's way too great. I just need an idol to bow down to. He says, do you not realize who God is? Look at God's people throughout history and what's the facts? We didn't learn anything from history and so therefore we repeat it. Then we get stuck in this miserable, miserable existence somewhere where our life is terrible because we chose to leave God. All right. Do you not realize you've been told over and over that from the foundations of the earth, God was there. God was the one that existed. God's the one that created it. Verse 22, it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Do what? It wasn't until like 200 A.D. that the Greeks started coming up with this idea that the earth was round or that they, they were figuring it out or claiming. And we've got still people little bit day that are going to go with the flat earth theory. Well, look, I'm fine with you having such a foolish idea in your head, but understand when God speaks, the facts are written. He said, God sits where? Above the circle of the earth. Way before science figured it out, God gave them the answer. All right, it says, and its inhabitants 
are like grasshoppers. Just a little joker jumping around. He says at the end of verse 22, who stretches out the heaven like a curtain? You know, you have the ability to pull the curtain at your house. He says, yeah, well, who lays out the heavens like that? Only one. Who spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? Only one. He brings the princes to nothing. That means the greatest ones that existed. He says, yeah, well, you think you're a great ruler? Eh, wrong answer. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Why? Because he's the great judge. They ain't got nothing on him. There's no knowledge that they can have that would compare to God. He said, scarcely shall they be planted, verse 24, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root on earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither. He says, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. You think you're bad? You think you've got a bad nation? Dear America, you think you're the greatest nation in the world and that you're better than God? Wake up. He will blow you like stubble on the ground. The wheat from the chaff and it's gone. There's no nation that will compare. And so we look at the Babylonians and we see a picture of hope because he says, look, the Babylonians might think they're bad. They might think they're strong. They might have you enslaved right now, but I'll tell you what, God is still in control. All right, we got to finish up. It's time. Within God's superiority over his people, we see that God was from creation, the overseer of the earth. We see that all powerful men can be brought under subjection. You think the president of the United States one big bad dude? Well, he's not because God is far greater. You think any dictator is great? Well, he's not because God is far above him. Notice verse 25 and verse 26. God knows his creation. It says, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. All right, you think about it. It's your turn, your turn to answer. Who's greater? Who's, who's the one that's equal to God? Verse 26, he says, Lifting up your eye, lift up your eyes on high, on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, and not one is missing. He says, I got you. I know every one of you. All right. They question, well, did God forget the promise? Did, did God forget me, verse 27? Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? He forgot me. No, what do we know? The word of the Lord stands forever. You know, there's some people today that start to wonder. They say, well, you know, life has went on for 2,000 years. Jesus was here and then he wasn't. What's that tell you? Well, maybe he's not coming back. Maybe he forgot us. Maybe he fell asleep. Maybe he's gone away. Maybe he doesn't remember anymore. It's exactly what he's talking about in Isaiah chapter 40. Don't lose heart. Do you not realize from the beginning of nature I was there? Do you not realize that princes and the most powerful people that you know upon the earth, he said, I'm above them. He says, do you not realize that the world... It's created by my hands as I pour in the ingredients. I want you to notice in verse 28 through 31, God can accomplish His will through mankind. And time passing by is not going to change it. God didn't forget you. 
God promised that the Christ would come and the Christ came. God promised when Christ was here, he said, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also. John 14. And the key is we've got to continue on our journey. All right, let's finish. Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 28, 29, 30, and 31. Here it says, Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Verse 30, it says, Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Here's our song. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And then we sing, Teach me, Lord, to wait. You talk about being steadfast in the Lord. What I mean is you keep on keeping on. You settle your feet in deep because no matter what, God's will is going to take place. What I mean is Jesus Christ is going to come back. And you better be ready. Now you might be thinking, well, I'm only 32 years old. I got plenty of time. Within this picture, they found themselves in a miserable situation. And speaking to them, he said, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Picture is that of an older person. You get down to an age where you're walking behind a walker and you can't move quickly. You get to an age where it's tough to even get out of the chair. And he says, they're going to be as youth. It says, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. It says, they're going to run and they're not even going to be tired. To walk and not faint. He said they're going to have their strength in God and they are excited for the day of the Lord. I want to encourage you, wait upon the Lord. And what do I mean? I mean you keep being a Christian because I promise God is coming. If you haven't given your life to Christ, I beg of you, make a change tonight. Understand that there is nothing more serious upon this earth than the fact that you will stand before your Maker and you will hear the words either, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, or you will hear the words, Depart from me, you sinners, you workers of iniquity. Take this life serious. There's nothing, nothing more important. If you haven't given your life to Christ, it's very simple. Be willing to, to confess Him as your Savior. Make a lifestyle of living for Him, turning from sin, being willing to be buried in the water, to come up, to rise, and you begin this lifestyle where you live for Him. You want to tell the world about it. You want to help everybody enjoy that gift that was given for us. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. And within that, we find hope for not only us, but for all.